Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. And thank you very much to all those who sent in positive comments about last week's episode about black cabs. Much obliged to you. If you haven't yet given it a listen and you feel so inclined, it's one to which it is well worth applying your ears. Our next two episodes, those of this week and next, couldn't be more different in tone. And I licensed myself to be a little bit light-hearted this week because next we're all about apocalypse. It's, uh, it's going to be a show about the very worst things that could happen to London. This week, by contrast, I'm doing one of the things I most like to do, and that is wandering around London in the company of somebody who, like me, likes nothing better than to get wind of a few unlikely London facts and follow them and see where they lead. The Watchword for this week's show is curiosity. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. from the university campus atmosphere at Dylan's Coffee Shop next to Waterstones. We're on Gower Street uh, around the back of Tottenham Court Road and uh, on the table between myself and Henry Elliott is a tome in bright red called Curiosity. Of its two authors, Henry Elliott is uh, here next to me and Matt Lloyd-Rose is conveniently located in Argentina. So hello to one of you. Hi, hi, How are you going? Yeah, very well, thanks. It's good to see you again. It is good. Yes, well, I should say our last encounter was something like four or five years ago. It was notable when you appeared in the coffee shop that you look exactly identical to our last encounter. You've changed not a jot. Have you been preserving yourself by means of embalming? Yeah, a bit of embalming. There's a, there's a portrait somewhere that's ageing horribly and I'm somehow remaining, keeping my good looks. Uh, well, I didn't say that. <laughs> Unchanged doesn't necessarily imply... Anyway, uh, maybe Matt is ageing. <laughs> Matt's ageing. He's horribly wizened now. Yeah, that's why he's not here. Our game would be up. <laughs> um, we're here to talk about curiosity and we're going to uh, move out and patrol the streets as well. Curiosity is a triumph i've got to say this thing is beautiful this is a cloth bound hardback book feels good in the hand and straight away you see that there are lots of beautiful illustrations by a variety of artists quirky uh, cool i think and 
Well, as a Londoner file, the first thing you do, of course, is dip into the many facts and, and weird angles that are going on here to give us different perspectives on the city. Congratulations. Uh, you found new material and loads of it. And uh, that's no mean feat. Thanks, Martin. Yeah, we're so thrilled with how it's come out. It's You're right, when you first open it, it's just really colourful, isn't it? You kind of... I think your first impressions of how sort of rich and varied the content is. And maybe it'd be useful to sort of describe the book a little because it's, it is quite an odd book and the structure is a bit odd. Essentially, what we've done is divided everything we wanted to say about London into 26 chapters, which we've uh, titled alphabetically. And that was, uh, that was a decision from the beginning, partly because we used to run a little magazine that's um, also called Curiosity. A very little magazine. <laughs> Absolutely tiny, uh, which was um, lettered rather than numbered. So it's a kind of continuation of that alphabetical sequence. But also we were inspired by Samuel Johnson's dictionary in London and also by the great Phyllis Pearsall's A to Z of London. This, um, and it's a, it's a structure that kind of feels appropriate to London, but also gives a sense of being comprehensive while also allowing you to structure your material. It might be worth, and, and this goes against the ethos of the book, I might be leading you onto ground that people already do know about, but just in case there any, is anyone who doesn't know about Phyllis Pearsall. So Phyllis Pearsall founded the Geographer's A to Z company and was responsible for the iconic A to Z street maps of London. There's kind of legends around Phyllis Pearsall. One of the legends is that she would, when she was making this map, would get up and work 18-hour days walking all the streets of London herself and writing down the numbers on the streets and the street names and then would come home and compile those into maps. And when she printed the maps, she would deliver the books in a wheelbarrow and would take them to her nearest bookshop. And some of these myths are true, some of them aren't. Um, for instance, her, her father was actually a well-known cartographer and she used his maps as the basis for hers. But it is true that she did go out on the streets to verify the accuracy of his maps. So... There's a bit of controversy around her. There was a moment when uh, a blue plaque was mooted for her and English Heritage actually turned it down because they felt that she didn't deserve it. But a great friend of ours, and, and I know who's been on um, the podcast before, Pete Burtu, is a great champion of Phyllis Pearsall, and, and, and he points out that in her own biography she never claimed anything that wasn't um, true. And her real achievement, I think, was to create such an iconic piece of mapping that every Londoner has on their shelf. And there is now an unofficial plaque to Phyllis Pearsall down. I think it's Stepford. I may be wrong there, but yeah, there is one now up on the walls of London. I feel like people have got blue plaques for less. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's some very niche characters you see on the walls, aren't there? And, and if nothing else, she went down every street and noted the numbers of the houses as well, so we know whether they're evens on one side, odds on the other, or if it's all up. Well, that's, that must take exactly. some... Exactly, and that was groundbreaking. Yeah, that yeah. hadn't been done before. Let's turn to the book properly here. So uh, with a little bit of a Pearsall infusion, what other uh, inspirations? So there's these 26 chapters, and each one looks at London from a different point of view. And they're pretty... We started off with a sort of list of chapters that might be more conventional. So we had things like culture, drinking, eating, fashion. And then we looked at this list and thought... Boring, boring. Quite boring, Boring. yeah. You look at that list and you know exactly what's going to be in each uh, chapter. So we then shook everything up and came up with a new list of titles which are pretty 
odd at first glance. The titles of the chapters themselves, which are on the back of the book, some are London-y words like Strand or Olympia or Zones, and some are just really odd words like Folkmoot, which is the Saxon name for the first parliament that met in London. And so that's a chapter about politics and protest and, and folk customs. Um, and then our, my favourite um, title is the Y title, which is Ilem, Y-L-E-M, which is actually a medieval word for the primordial matter of the universe before um, the first elements were created. And it sort of went out of fashion for centuries until the 1950s when this um, group of Big Bang physicists needed a word for that primordial substance. And so they looked back to John Gower and Confessio Amantis and plucked this medieval word out of obscurity. So we use that title to talk about the origins of London and the archaeological digs in London, but also the myths and legends around the, where London came from. I feel we've got a little bit lazy then in our nomenclature when it comes to physics, because somebody's just won a Nobel Prize for, uh, for strange matter, and um, recently people have been talking about dark matter. These are not particularly adventurous. No, I prefer uh, Ilem. Ilem matter, yeah, that would be great. And Dust is my favourite title here. Here in Prospect. Mm. Oh, what's this? Hagiolatry. Yeah, hagi- hagiolatry. Like, like hagiography, which is the writing about a saint's life, hagiolatry is the worship of saints of any kind. But we use that um, title to look at both the saints of London but also the celebrities and the way that London creates these icons, iconic figures that survive and become part of the mythos of London. Well, we're going to head out into London, into Gower Street. Where are we going? Well, we're going to have a little wonder. We are in the heart of student town here, so why don't we walk into UCL and see what we find and then and then go from there. Mm. OK, just uh, by the by, this is a cool cafe. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah, Gower Street, Waterstones on Gower Street has gone through a bit of a renovation recently. And, of course, this, this store was for a long time called Dylan's, which is um, before Waterstones bought it, which is a nice little reference in the name of this cafe. This is actually I know it's a chain store, but this is one of my favourite bookshops in London. There's so many winding corridors here and odd statues and hidden away sofas. And what I really like with the recent reshelving is they've put a lot of their antiquarian books alongside their new titles. So it's a really unexpected mix on the shelves. We've been really well supported by by Waterstones and by Independence. As far as I know, every London bookshop has at least one copy of the book. We've done a couple of um, events, one at Stanford's bookshop, that great independent map and travel bookshop, uh, and we've done another great event at Waterstones Piccadilly, so, so a mixture. Waterstones does seem to be the kind of monopolising force in London bookshops, certainly, but I think they're doing a really great job of keeping each store quite individual and allowing the staff at each shop to, to present things in unusual ways and include their own recommendations around the shop. So I've been really impressed by Waterstones recently. So you've been chatting up Waterstones cashiers? <laughs> yeah, getting them to put our book next to the till. Look how youthful I look. I haven't changed in five years, you know. <laughs> Would you stock this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's my tactic. Uh, we, uh, we must take to our feet and find UCL. Peculiarly, there are pairs of... what? Somebody hasn't thought this through. There are pairs of footprints that have been uh, stenciled onto the floor. 
but in pairs, not so that they suggest walking, they suggest places to stand. Yeah. Oh, right, you, you reckon we should jump from one to the other? Maybe it's jumping. Or maybe it's... Uh, I don't know what that is. It's a cue sign. It's very odd. How did this work then? Because your partner is conspicuous by his absence. How did you go about putting the book together between you? So Matt and I, we were at university together, and then when we both came to London in 2010, we started making this little magazine, Curiosity. And we worked on that for uh, five years or so, and before we got this commission to write this book-length version of it. Was this always the aim? No, it wasn't, actually. It, was, it really came about quite unexpectedly. We were introduced to a literary agent and then... Um, met another by chance and then ended up with a literary agent um, without really having planned to find one and then he was fantastic and suddenly we found we were pitching a book idea to publishers and suddenly we were writing it it was quite a sort of surprise actually when, how it all came together and we did, did a lot of the planning together here in London and then yes Matt moved with his wife to Buenos Aires in Argentina because that would help with the publicity. <laughs> because, well, do you know, in a funny way, it did help because it gave us a contrasting... I feel like um, Matt had this kind of rose-tinted memory of London, whereas I was still stuck in the kind of the grime and the commuter traffic. And um, So you'd, you'd recommend that as an approach, would you? Somebody's thinking about writing a London book? Move, well, move I, th- to I think Aires. it certainly puts things in perspective and you kind of... You can kind of see the wood for the trees a bit. We found it. We found it worked very well, and actually, the book is completely a joint effort. And you know, we spoke on Skype every day. We um, shared all our files electronically. So actually, it was almost better than um, living in the same city. We're passing a cow. I feel this is in the spirit of the book. Actually, there's a, a life-size black and white cow here. Bloomsbury Farmers Market is being advertised. Yeah, a lovely cow. I think our favourite cow in the book is um, the cow skin in the library of St George's Hospital in South London, uh, where there's a big brown cow skin with its horns still attached, strapped to the wall. And this is the skin of Blossom, the cow, whose cowpox was injected into a dairy maid by um, William Jenner. And it was um, this injected cowpox that cured her of smallpox or inured her to smallpox. And that's why vaccination is called vaccination, because it just means of a cow vaccine. Um, And anyway, the original cow is there to inspire the students at St George's Medical School. But not the skin of the dairy maid. Well, if she has been skinned, it's not in public display. Uh, what I what I love about your book, and it, sorry, I, we need a longer pause between the skin of a dairy maid and, and, and that uh, sentiment. But the, what I love about the book is it takes this well tried and tested format of uh, thing, things you didn't know about London, but these are genuinely things you didn't know about London, uh, which is quite a rare departure, to be honest. Well, there are so many books that uh, yes, I, I know that, I know that. Uh, here's sort of one out of twenty that I didn't know. Everything in your book is fresh information. Oh, that's so kind. Well. The problem we had from the beginning was how much material there is to say about London. We found ourselves having to strip stuff out constantly. And our rule, really, for whether something stayed in was whether the story around it felt irresistible, that you just had to read it once you'd started, and and then it was a story you'd want to tell your friends afterwards. And so that immediately ruled out anything that was kind of common knowledge. Well, a a touchstone for me, did the Noses of Soho make it in? The Noses of Soho do make it in as the very first thing in the introduction because they were the story that 
first kind of got us intrigued by London. And at the time, there was very little known about them. We um, kind of stumbled across one, and then more and so more, to speak. so to speak. And then you're absolutely right. That, that kind of that story has become reasonably commonplace now. And in fact, I think it's the title of, a, of another book about London now, but Seven Noses of Soho. And, but often we take something which might seem familiar and then sort of try and find unusual ways to talk about it. So, you know, you walk around London, we're walking today, there's, you can see bollards on the side of the street. Um, they're a sort of feature of London cityscape that you don't often think about. We try to find some unusual stories about bollards. So, for instance, Samuel Johnson, who we were just talking about, always touched bollards when he passed them for luck. So we've taken to doing that now as a little quirk of walking around London. Well, I didn't notice you touching bollards as we were talking. I think I'd have noticed that. That's true. I, well, I usually get alarmed if I spot people doing that. I guess I'm on best behaviour today. Wait a minute, there, was, there were bollards in Johnson's time? Yeah, yeah, apparently. I think, um, well, what would they have used? I, sometimes they used cannons, didn't they? Upended with musket balls. I heard that was more shame after you, Wellington. Shame on you for pluralising cannon with an S. Uh, oh, what is canon uh, plural? Well, kind of. Shame. We're going to do a Game of Thrones. Shame. <laughs> anyway, what was your what was your um, fact about the canon? Uh, I think <laughs> I think early bollards were often made from cannon with their shot stuck in the top, and they were upended. And that's why bollards often look a bit like upended cannons. With, but I think that was particularly after the Battle of Waterloo. So I don't know what um, kind of bollards Johnson would have been touching, but that's a, that's the story that Boswell relates. And now we've stopped here outside um, a fantastic spot, the Institute of Making in UCL, which is the home of the Materials Library, which is one of our favourite places in London. It's this sort of it's kind of a club within UCL that collects a library of odd substances and some of them are sort of and in fact they seem to be open today to let us drop in Um, so there's some some amazing things here there's things you kind of recognise like there's some crystal wine glasses here and uh, we're looking at illuminated cabinets and some tuning forks um, of different sizes. Well, more than different sizes. This is if you were a surgeon who was about to operate but only using tuning forks, then this is what would be laid out before you. And there's glass, metal, various sorts of plastic. It does look quite clinical, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, your spot for choice. Really. You'd have to be very, very serious about tuning something. <laughs> yes. And but they also. If, have if that thing wasn't in tune by the time you'd finished with this lot, then shame be a on problem. you. Yeah. <laughs> They've also got some really odd materials here, like some man-made things. So some, uh, they've got some self-healing concrete, which is this material that has dried bacteria and some kind of food attached within it so that when it were ever to crack, the water gets into the crack, wakes up the bacteria and softens the food. The bacteria eats the food and excretes calcite to fill the gap. It's absolutely extraordinary. And... Um, they also have some just sort of odd things. Like I think one of the directors of the museum went to her family farm and found an old piece of um, sellotape that had just got very old and unsticky, and that's in here as well. So there's, it's a really odd cabinet of curiosities and materials library. We're merely lurking in the entrance portal, but I suspect that you could happily spend a, a good few hours here you could, and examining what they had to offer. And they have regular drop-in sessions called discovery sessions. I think it's once a month or maybe even more frequent. 
what I love about this juxtaposition is just along from the materials library full of odd um, modern materials we come across the equally amazing UCL Petri Museum which is uh, the collection of the Egyptologist Flinders Petri which he left to the museum and this features a few times in the book there's some really extraordinary things up there there's the world's oldest material dress which was unearthed in a cemetery at Tarkhan in Egypt and then more memorable perhaps is, um, is one of the rare unexpurgated likenesses of the fertility god Min from ancient Egypt who usually has his phallus chiselled off by squeamish Egyptologists because it was felt to be too rude but luckily the one in the Petri Museum is still standing tall and uh, his other um, uh, sort of asset as a fertility god is that great and well known aphrodisiac the uh, lettuce so he's got a huge phallus and he's holding a big lettuce and um, he's an inspiration to everyone and then there's um, also some just quite bizarre um, exhibits up there carefully labelled and presented in cabinets like for instance the small round pebble and the rough pebble which were part of the collection and have been lovingly labelled and presented probably two of the most underwhelming exhibits on display in well, they're, they're, they've got good competition from the piece of sellotape next door <laughs> yes that's true come here for all the thrills of London are they really just two, two pebbles yeah there's a cabinet of pebbles and there's yeah rough pebble round pebble I want to ask you more about... Well, I think, Now, you see, we've got a problem here. Uh, we've got a clean rating on iTunes, as it stands, or we did have before you started telling us about the ancient god Min. Ah. Um, I, I sort of want to ask you questions around it, but I, I don't think we're going to survive that. <laughs> the censors won't allow it. Well, I think the answer is to come to the Petri Museum and you'd, all your... It's not what you'd imagine being up there, is it? It looks quite sober. It's a bit sober, doesn't it? And, and to be honest, the, the mood up there is reasonably sober, but... Um, if I was you working there, my, it, it, all my studies would be disrupted by uh, constant giggles. Yeah, you're right. Let's move on Continue. to it. Yes, we're kind of going underground here into the bowels of UCL. It's, um, I think, just the end of, or maybe just after Freshers Week, so it's um, the place is buzzing with yeah, new I've got, students. Yeah, I've got the impression there's a lot of, opti- or rather pessimism hasn't yet set in. These are people who, who don't yet know the woes of student debt. Exactly. Fresh-faced, optimistic. Looking forward to their time here. And we're emerging into a, a very pleasant courtyard. It's uh, brown brick and red brick and ivy. So we're on our way to meet one of the uh, one of our favourite people in London, who uh, appears a couple of times in the book. And a tour of London wouldn't be complete without um, having a little moment with him. Around the corner we go, and through an unremarkable doorway into the halls of UCL. Past the Coke machine and the gentleman's toilet into a dark corner. I'm beginning to uh, lose my trust in Henry's navigation skill. The suspicion this is going to be horrific, whatever it is. There's a wooden cabinet in the room just beyond the glazed doors. There and a tour group seems to be around it. The words Jeremy Bentham are engraved in the uh, in the wood cabinet. I've got half an idea that I remember the Elephant Man being somewhere around. And isn't there the founder of another college who's been stuffed or something? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Is Just- Jer- is- 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Jeremy Bentham, the, the man in question. He is. We're about to meet Jeremy. Um... Yeah, the Elephant Man is at the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel. And I don't think he's on display, although I think he's there in a, in a basement room somewhere. But yes, Jeremy Bentham, the great 18th century Enlightenment thinker, who, together with John Stuart Mill, founded utilitarianism. He was so proud of his worldly achievements that he left instructions in his will to be embalmed using an ancient Maori embalming technique and uh, this is the one you've been using <laughs> I've picked up some tips <laughs> and uh, and he left instructions for him to be preserved dressed in his own clothes and then sat in his usual chair um, in the position that he was wont to sit in when he was thinking during life and his body was they followed his instructions he was preserved, and he left his body to the newly founded UCL. So he wasn't actually involved in the founding of the university, but from its earliest days, he's been here. And uh, unfortunately, something went a bit wrong with the embalming of his head. I don't know which Maori recipe they were using, but it's, um, it went a bit wrong, and it ended up just rather sort of dark and green and um, wizened. So what we're about to see is a model head on top of his genuine skeleton mm. and body. And the head is now in the Institute of Archaeology at UCL. There's a legend that KCL students once stole the head and played a game of football with it, but UCL deny this is true. That, that would be very disrespectful. It would be very disrespectful. And um, a lot of respect is paid to Jeremy Bentham. His ca- cabinet is opened every day. And for a long time, it's said that he would attend faculty board meetings and he'd be put on the minutes as attending but not voting and so he would even in death oversee a kind of great enlightenment project of the London University Now what is that suggestive of collective madness of some sort? True and UCL actually deny that um, this happens anymore although there are photos online of him sitting at tables Well, no, hold on I assumed that you just meant that they uh, minuted the spirit of him attending but you mean they sort of okay, they wheel, wheel they wheel well at some point they have certainly wheeled the body to 
to a board table and sat him alongside everyone. Well, the head being used as football suddenly looks... More likely, exactly. A nice recent addition to this cabinet is a camera attached to Twitter called the Panoptic Cam, which is inspired by one of Jerry Bentham's most famous ideas for a prison he would call the Panopticon. The idea of the Panopticon was a prison which didn't need staffing. It was a prison where all the cells were visible from a central watchtower and the prisoners never knew when there was someone watching from the tower or not, so they would behave because they had to assume there would be someone watching. And um, it's quite a terrifying idea. It never got built in the end. He, he drew up all the plans, and um, he even designed the menu that the prisoners were going to eat. He, he wrote out a recipe for the Devonshire pie they'd be given, um, which actually is still served sometimes in St John's restaurant in there. Uh, in Farringdon. But the Panopticon was never built, but its spirit lives on, I think, in CCTV and surveillance cameras, the idea that you don't know if someone's watching, but they could be, so you behave yourself. And so, in a rather humorous um, touch, UCL has attached a camera to this cabinet, so that as you're looking at Jeremy Bentham, you're being photographed yourself. You never know quite when the photo is going to be taken, but every now and then it will be taken and uploaded to Twitter. So uh, even in death, his panopticon is living on. Well, we're a long way down the creepy tunnel there, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, it is a bit creepy. We've been holding back because a bearded cove is holding forth to an assembled group of, well, there may be th- uh, freshers who are looking aghast. Should we sidle in the back and pretend to be freshers? Let's do it. I can confirm we have now glimpsed Bentham. To me, Bentham there looks like an advert for a, a breakfast cereal. Yeah. Oh, what, uh, a certain brand of college oats, maybe? Uh, yeah, he looks like the shredded wheat fellow, doesn't he? <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're right. Well, I, I could imagine um, shredded wheat having certain preservative properties if you eat enough of it. It doesn't go off in the cupboard, does it? Do I mean, or do I mean Quaker Oats? I think Quaker okay, Oats. Do I mean yeah, Quaker Oats? Yeah. Maybe Quaker Oats. I, don't, I actually don't know if, what his religious um, background was. I mean, he's one of the great figures of the 18th century and left so many, um, so much writing, so many letters, so many papers, that there's this huge ongoing project to transcribe all that he wrote. And uh, it's such an enormous job that the people running it at UCL have organised this great system where um, anyone can volunteer to help with this and go online. And you get given a, a, a digital photograph of a page and then you transcribe it underneath. And um, you, it's a voluntary thing, but it's crowdsourcing this transcription service and I think they've done something like 17 of the 30 volumes so far and um, anyone can do it and you'll get a credit in the final publication when it comes out. I heard of a very joined up bit of thinking which was you know the little capture things that you have to type out when you're trying to get onto a secure website. Okay. So you have to identify the word that's oh, at yeah. an angle. Yeah, yeah. And they found some way of tying that to transcribing handwritten works so that it, essentially you were outsourcing your transcription and, and doing it piecemeal. Crowdsourcing it and using the wisdom of crowds to get a, an average of what people thought that word said. That put, is clever. Put it all back together and you end up with the full work. That's very clever, yeah. I don't know if it's actually happening or not. 
One of our chapters is called Congestion, about the crowdedness of London. And uh, I feel like we're experiencing that a little now. Yes, there's a throng as we go across the road. If you're into your architecture, then you'll note that the side that we've just come from is a Georgian neoclassical limestone. On this side, however, we've got more of a Tudor effect. I think it's reaching out for Tudor, but I think it's probably later than that. Actually, yeah, it's kind of neo-Gothic. Um, it's an odd building, this. It's called the Cruciform Building, because if you look at it on Google Satellite, you'll see it's a kind of cross-shape. I think it's student student halls, but um, it's certainly quite odd. It's a bit like a sort of haunted castle, isn't it? Yeah, I can't quite put my finger I, I almost want to say it's Beaux-Arts, but without the Beaux, Beaux or the art. <laughs> the next place we're going to stop, I'm excited to show you, because there's a... Um, We've hidden a treasure hunt throughout Curiosity. We commissioned a great um, ceramic artist called Paul Bomber uh, to create six original um, tiles, six, six small ceramic tiles, which we've hidden. We've literally stuck to the walls in different places around London. This is a hunt hidden through the book. So there's images of the tiles hidden on different pages of the book with clues to where they are stuck up in the city. And the trick is to find the six tiles in the book, go out and find them in, in the real world, and in the corners of those tiles are little letters and numbers. And once you've found all six tiles, they will reveal the location of a seventh and final place. And if you go there, there's a huge dusty leather tome where you can sign your name as someone who has cracked the curiosity riddle. And uh, I can reveal that about ten people so far have already uh, solved this. And I'm Presumably you can save time by just finding the leather tone. True, but it would be very hard to find without the clues on well, the tiles. Sounds easier than finding six small tiles. One leather tone. <laughs> True. Is True. it a big leather tone? It is a big leather yeah, that's tone. that's the way to go then, isn't it? Maybe, although it's out of sight. It would be hard to spot. I'd just ask around. <laughs> have you noticed a big leather tome around here with about ten people coming to sign it recently? It could work. But I'm going to... Um, Listening, do you know where this... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's not the way. I'm going to let your listeners into the secret location of one of these tiles to get them started. Mm. We won't say exactly where it is, although we might describe some of the things around it, so um, it might be possible to Building, get a clue. Buildings. Or certainly buildings. Building people. Let's... Um, some cars. And it's, and it's inside. Let's head inside and see what we find. I feel I need to keep my voice low and respectful because of the many deceased moles nearby. So um, we're passing a couple of odd things on the way to this tile. We've just passed a jar full of moles and we've passed a very rare skeleton of a quagga. It's the rarest skeleton in the world because hardly any exist and the quagga is now extinct. Rarer than a certain dinosaur skeleton? Um, I believe it is. But well, that does oh, sound that odd, doesn't it? Mm. But I. Um, Hold on, do we have a wobbly fact here? Well, maybe it's not the rarest skeleton in the way. It's, it's the rarest of some kind of skeleton. Why don't you, there's a book of facts there you could check. I could, yeah. Is it in there? It is in here. Let me you should check. Let's find it. Maybe this was one of Matt's facts. I believe it <laughs> might have been. You're listening to London Is That Loud, where we're reading a book 
So it's not in knowledge, it's in chapter V, I believe. Yeah, here we are. Until the 1970s, the Grant Museum believed it had two zebra skeletons. On closer investigation, one turned out to be a donkey. The other was identified as a quagga, the rarest, rarest type of skeleton in the world. There are only six other quagga skeletons, fewer than for any other creature for whom skeletons have been collected. Well, that Quag- sounds like nonsense. What do they mean by creature? Maybe, well, maybe it's in the definition of creature. I think you've, uh, you're very clinically putting your finger on that. Because they must quite often dig up a bone of it. Is it uh, that's always in the news, isn't it? Here's a, a dinosaur we've never heard about before. True, one maybe. Of, one of its type. Yeah. To be honest, Quentin, I can't... Well, this is very this disappointing. Is very well, I think we've hit controversy. Maybe we're, uh, maybe we're excluding dinosaurs from this. At least we didn't give away where we are. <laughs> Um, so here we are, we're in the Grant Museum of uh, Zoology. And here's a cabinet um, full of starfish in formaldehyde and dried specimens. And on the back wall, you have to duck slightly to see it, is one of these riddle tiles. So this is a, this is a big reveal for listeners. This is a good place to start. Now in the book, when you find, um, when you find this uh, tile... It's um, just a white square with an image on it. In real life, it's got these um, letters and numbers in the corners. And the thing to do is to make a note of those when you find it in real life. And when you've found all six, then you can solve the riddle. So you still need to, to come here? You need to come here, yeah. We won't reveal what they are. I mean, it's got to be said, the Grant Museum is a utterly worthwhile way to spend an afternoon. It's extraordinary, yeah. It's, I think it is one of our very favourite places in London, which is why we wanted to put a tile here. And it's, it's, a, it's a training museum as well, isn't it? I believe so. It's, it's part of the um, UCL um, Department of Zoology. The displays are done beautifully. It's just packed full of strange creatures, shapes, shells, skeletons. Yeah. And it's a hands-on thing as well, so if you've had enough of touching your bollards in the street, then you can come in and manipulate a bone in private. <laughs> Not too... Uh, continue the double entente. Yeah, completely. Um, just passing a dugong at the moment. <laughs> so we are, yes. You wouldn't want one of those in the sewer, would you? Yeah, it'd be rather scary. The um, director of the museum, Jack Ashby, is an expert in Tasmanian devils. So um, when I was last here installing the tile, he was uh, just about to fly off to Tasmania to conduct his researches. I think he's particularly interested in their, um, in the sort of pathology of Tasmanian devils. One of my favourite displays is near the door. <laughs> this amazing display of different eyes in animals. Eyes are a strange biological um, phenomenon because they co-evolved in six different strands of the tree of life. And so animals have ended up with eyes that look quite similar to each other, so the eyes in vertebrates that we have, or the eyes in octopuses, or in snails. But in fact, they're all, they all evolved separately, and it just turns out that the eye is a really great design that came about in six different ways. So as in six different 
versions of how an eye works, or they all basically follow the same... They all basically idea. follow the same principle, exactly, but um, it's unusual that they, one didn't evolve from the other. They co-evolved to allow these different types of creatures to see... Well, as with so much of what we're talking about today, we can, we've only got time to, to dip in and dip out again. I would strongly urge you to pay the Grant Museum a visit. Uh, they're uh, open in the afternoons, Jim. I think it's weekday afternoons, yeah. And, uh, I mean, there's, there's no logical end to our perambulations today, is there? But we sort of need to impose an end point. What is that going to be? Well, we could, uh, given the theme of Jeremy Bentham... There's a nice uh, pub along here called the Jeremy Bentham. We could stop there for a pint. This is just an excuse to go to the pub, isn't it? There's no fact <laughs> attached to this. Uh, is there no, a t- I've got nothing more other than the... There's connect- no fact attached. You just want to go down the pub. You're supposed to wait till after the recording. Then. <laughs> or we could... Um... <laughs> or you just decide to, to drown yourself in... Sorry, pick, it's, maybe it's the sight of all those pickled eyeballs. Yeah, they do... Um, you do need a bit of a stiff drink after seeing those... Well, it's all action around here, isn't it? I didn't realise there was quite so much building work going on. It looks as though they've taken out possibly a nasty, brutalist block of flats there and they're they're putting something in instead. You really only have to glance away from central London for about five minutes and uh, everything's been moved around. True, it's constantly being built and rebuilt. There's a great line in uh, William Blake, who's another figure that's haunted the book, where he talks about London continually building and continually decaying and when he was writing London was going through its well one of its many big expansions but it feels like that's still very true today that wherever you look things are being built and being knocked down and it's this constant kind of cycle of um, rejuvenation that London goes through. So to what extent can you future proof your book? Very good question yeah we I mean it's difficult. We've tried to um, we've tried to include examples that are reasonably timeless. We haven't involved, included any kind of temporary exhibitions, that sort of thing. But of course, London changes all the time, and and we make this point in our introduction that even before the book was printed, things are probably already going out of date. And we're quite kind of um, philosophical about that. We quite like the idea that this book is useful at the moment but gradually it's going to become more useful as a snapshot of what London was like in 2016 and towards the end of the book we talk about the future of London and the various dystopian visions for what will happen to London in the years to come and we quite like the idea of uh, even when people stop being interested in what London was like in 2016 at least they'll still have a big hefty book that they can use to stave off the hordes of mutant rats that are overrunning the dead city. So um, you, you can't possibly know it, but you've actually queued us up perfectly for next week's episode, which is about apocalypses in London. Ah, well... That, that was incredible. <laughs> Completely unintentional. Well, I look forward to listening to that episode. There's some amazing apocalypses in London. And uh, maybe we could finish with a, a flurry of facts. <laughs> flurry of facts. A flurry of facts with a, a cheesy a synthesizer um, theme tune. Hmm... Well, since we're on the future theme, let's uh, think about the future of London. I mean, we're just walking around Bloomsbury. One of the iconic structures here is the Senate House building, that great white tower, which features in two dystopian future Londons. It's the, uh, it was Orwell's model for the Ministry of Truth in 1984. And it's also um, in the day of the Triffids, where um, 
these survivors take a last stand. Um, they block the Triffids out of the Senate House Library with, behind the gates, and it's where they kind of hold themselves up at the end of that book. One of our favourite um, ways to travel into the future in London is um, by time travelling. And to time travel, you need a time machine. And, um, of course, one of the first time machines described in London was the time machine in H.G. Wells's novel, The Time Machine, which is set in Richmond, just inside London. And um, the time traveller in that book travels into future versions of Richmond, the first one of which includes these two kind of warring races of humanoids, um, uh, oh, au pairs and uh, white collar workers. <laughs> um, there's sort of subterranean um, cavemen, and then a strange weekly class of um, above ground people. Like I said. Yeah, and then even further into the future, I think something like 30 million years in the future, um, the time traveller arrives in Richmond, and Richmond is now the shore of an oily sea with big white crabs and, and big flappy butterflies who are the only um, living creatures. Uh, but um, if you can't find the time machine in Richmond, there's one in Brompton Cemetery. There's this strange uh, Egyptian-style mausoleum in Brompton Cemetery, which is very mysterious. It's said to be the tomb of three anonymous sister spinsters but no key exists to this tomb and no plan of its um, interior design and the conspiracy theory is that this was actually constructed by this eccentric Egyptologist who's buried just nearby as a time machine and um, if anyone can work out how to get inside then maybe they'll emerge in a different century and maybe someone who's done that is this chap called Jacob von Hogflum who you may have met he, um, he lived in the 18th century, or at least he was born in the 18th century. But you'll notice blue plaques appearing and disappearing around London, marking where he has lived and will live at different points in the past and future. So these are always quite temporary, and pictures exist online if you search for it. But look out for the next appearance of Jacob von Hogflum. And um, if you meet him, then uh, ask him to travel back to 2016 so he can come onto the podcast. Well, we'll see if we can get him on to a future show or indeed a past one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> a reminder of the name of the book and all the usual details that attend it. Yeah, thanks, Renny. So the book is Curiosity by uh, me, Henry Elliott, and Matt Lloyd-Rose. It's published by Penguin Books and available in all bookshops. I think this is a fantastic read. Forget it's, it's Christmas coming up soon, and uh, I'm really happy to plug anything that is of uh, such high quality. For now, Henry Elliott, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Henry Elliott. Thanks too to Matt Lloyd Rose and to Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm Quentin Wolf.
front door. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.